0: Welcome to Antiquity in Gotham, a podcast that explores how New Yorkers engaged with, reinterpreted, and understood antiquity. So today, I want to talk a little bit about New Yorkers and where they live. Well, actually, in fact, where they die. New Yorkers care about where they live. They care about where they die. So unsurprisingly, like the pharaohs of ancient Egypt and the emperors or newly freedmen of Rome, New Yorkers also really cared about where they spent their eternity. New Yorkers want to be buried in style and in good company especially if they have the means. A tomb in a sense is a final moment and a final monument for self-fashioning and self-presentation to the world at large. It makes me think a little bit about what one of my favorite characters from antiquity Trimalchio said about dying and death and tombs. Now Trimalchio many of you probably know he was the uncouth outrageous nouveau riche friedman from uh, the Satyricon by Petronius, which is a great satirical novel. In the Satyricon, Trimalchio spends a lot of time describing his over-the-top tomb. And this description has delighted readers ever since it was first written in the late first century CE. And it really sums up the concerns of New Yorkers and ancient Romans as well. It is quite wrong for a man to decorate his house while he is alive and not to trouble about the house where he must make a much longer stay. Like Trimalchio, New Yorkers desired an architectural voice that would provide them with cultural authority, prestige in this life, and the next and attest to their economic, social, political, and or artistic achievements forever. Now, the desire to be buried in a cemetery of high repute with a suitable monument was as old as the United States in New York, but burial in a grand mausoleum was not a common occurrence in New York City until after 1838. So today, what we're going to do is look at how neo-antique architecture, specifically Egyptian architecture, was appropriated in the creation of some of the most striking tombs and memorials in New York City. Um, Briefly, I'm going to talk a little bit about how people were buried and two of New York City's most important cemeteries, mainly Greenwood and Woodlawn, and also to understand a little bit how these ancient forms evolved from kind of about 1840 onwards. Now, New York City cemeteries have enchanted countless scholars, writers, authors, poets, and artists. So I'm not going to try and summarize the history of burials in New York City, but I am going to try and focus on a few select monuments and talk about them. All right. So first thing to lay the scene, we have to understand the problems of the dead in a living city. Now, the practicalities of urban life, specifically hygienic and disease concerns and space constraints, started to override more spiritual considerations in early 19th century New York City. New York's population had tripled from 30,000 to almost 90,000 during the course of the 18th century. And that population only continued to expand with the opening of the Erie Canal in 1825. And that connected to New York City to markets within the United States and made the city even more attractive to immigrants. By the 1830s, New York had been a major population center for 200 years, and the churchyards and vaults, which had served as the burial grounds for the dead from the city's inception, were simply filling up. Annually, there were about 10,000 interments in New York City. Now, burying bodies within the bounds of New York City was problematic, as dead bodies contaminated water supplies and contributed to the outbreaks of cholera and other waterborne diseases. By 1822, there were 22 burial areas south of City Hall, and many of these graveyards were not well-kept, and so furthered the risk of disease. To mitigate such risks, a law was passed in 1823 that outlawed all burials in graves or vaults south of Canal, Sullivan, and Grand Streets. So New Yorkers had to figure out where to put the dead. This is an opportunity, and New Yorkers are always good about seizing opportunities. And that opportunity manifested itself in the creation of non-sectarian and rural cemeteries. Non-sectarian cemeteries, which were not attached to a specific church, first appeared in the 1830s with the establishment of the New York marble cemeteries on the Lower East Side. But these two are both too small to accommodate the ever-increasing numbers of the dead. So a solution was rural cemeteries. Now these were cemeteries that were located on the edges of cities. They're practical and they're an elegant solution to the problems of limited space in urban centers and the ever-pending threat of disease. Consecrated in December 1804, the largest rural cemetery was Pierre Lachaise east of Paris. Within two decades, its naturalistic, picturesque landscape was filled with grand tombs, classical mausolea, and more humble monuments, and it soon became a model for European and American cemeteries. By 1840, several important rural cemeteries had been founded and opened in the United States. These included Mount Auburn in Cambridge, Massachusetts, founded in 1832, Laurel Hill in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and importantly for New York City, Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, which was founded in 1838. Greenwood would later be joined in 1863 by Woodlawn Cemetery. So let's talk a little bit about Greenwood and Woodlawn. In 1832, Brooklynite Henry Pierpont visited Mount Alban, and he was determined that Brooklyn, which would only be incorporated as a city in 1834, have land set aside for a rural cemetery. So in 1838 Greenwood was incorporated and the first 175 acres of lands was acquired by 1840. And the first internments were also made in that same year. So it was designed by Major David Bates Douglas, who also worked on the design of the Croydon Reservoir. And it's typical of kind of rural cemeteries which focused on a picturesque design and a harmony of lots. But Greenwood didn't really get off to a very good start. It was very inauspicious. During the first three years of existence, there were only 400 burials. Think about the fact that there were 10,000 internments in New York City annually, so this is like no burials. It was really hard to convince New Yorkers that they should bury their dead off the island of Manhattan, far away from their parishes where they worshipped and their homes. But this all changed with a celebrity endorsement. DeWitt Clinton, the U.S. senator, New York City mayor, sixth governor of the state of New York, and the man responsible for constructing the Erie Canal, the single most impressive piece of infrastructure built in North America and Europe to date, had died in Albany in 1828 in poor circumstances. While he had had a grand state funeral, he was interned in a very simple grave. In 1844, the decision was made to re-intern DeWitt Clinton in Greenwood, and funds were raised between 1851 and 1853 to raise $2,100, so that's $2,100, to erect a statue by Henry Kirk Brown, which was possibly the first bronze cast sculpture in the United States to mark his grave near the entrance in Greenwood Cemetery. Clinton's reinterment put Greenwood on the map, transforming the cemetery into Brooklyn and New York City's most prestigious burial grounds. Now Greenwood then quickly became a popular location for locals. Public green space was a precious commodity as New York City expanded and became more populous. Greenwood served as New York City's de facto public park until the founding of Central Park and Prospect Park about 30 years later. European tourists. I think of these as the kind of predecessors of the throngs who tour the High Line today came to Greenwood and praised the cemetery for its beauty. By the early 1860s, Greenwood was an extremely popular tourist location that attracted nearly 500,000 visitors a year, making it the second most visited site, making it the second most visited site in the United States after Niagara Falls. Now, Despite its popularity, Greenwood did have drawbacks due to New York City's development and geography. By the 1860s, it was difficult to get to Greenwood. You'd have to venture through the congested streets of lower Manhattan and take a ferry to Brooklyn. As a result, some of the respectable women of many of New York and Manhattan's elite families were unable to attend funerals. Woodlawn was kind of created as a result. Uh, it was founded on December 29, 1863, when Reverend Alpsom Peters, a Presbyterian minister and entrepreneur, gathered a group of men, many of whom were connected to the New York and Harlem Railroad, uh, in Morrisania, a village in Westchester County, to discuss founding a cemetery along the line. He needed investors to purchase the land, and the railroad needed more passengers, and ergo, Woodlawn Cemetery was born. From its inception, Woodlawn was very accessible. It could be reached by horse carriage, railroad, and later by car and subway. Now, while many of the access issues to Greenwood were eliminated when the Brooklyn Bridge was completed in 1883, the northward movement of residential developments and churches on Manhattan meant that Woodlawn was even more convenient. Greenwood and Woodlawn both offered a patron the opportunity to build a grand tomb to celebrate one's achievements and family. The Royal Cemetery was a place for aspiration and social posturing. Regardless of class, background, and faith, anyone with sufficient funds could create their own final abode. This meant that even the simplest tomb or grave could be surrounded by more fashionable and affluent neighbors, and of course, natural beauty. The new rural cemeteries encouraged new modes of behavior, visiting and strolling, which we've already talked about, which augmented the tomb's visual impact on the viewer. Cemeteries became places of lived experience where tombs and landscapes also reaffirmed the social status of the deceased. The success of rural cemeteries were also scored by dramatic changes in art practices and architecture at the time. First of all, there was a bigger interest in the individual. Uh, There was also basically a development of commemorative arts and artisans in order to be able to support that. Uh, You had the transformation and growth of quarry and monument industries, which meant you really could erect big funerary architecture. Uh, the other thing that happened, uh, certainly that impacted, uh, the second half of the, uh, 19th century was the American civil war, which saw over 600,000 deaths or casualties on both sides. And the death of so many amplified the need for large family mausolea with those kind of background ideas. And because time is limited, I'm only going to talk really about two mausolea, both of which appropriate ancient Egyptian forms. Um, if you're interested in reading more, um, I've got some bibliography up on the website that you can take a look at as well. So I've selected these monuments to highlight how important Egyptian architecture and Egyptian ideas were part of this conversation. Egyptian architectural and artistic forms were considered to be solemn, massive, and conveying the finality of death. After all, the Egyptians had built the pyramids, the ultimate symbol of death and endless life. So, by the late 19th century, affluent Americans had also started to travel to Egypt to visit ancient sites and to reap the health benefits of Egypt's dry climate. The popularity of obelisks in Neo Egyptian architecture also received a boost when the obelisk known as Cleopatra's Needle was erected in Central Park in 1881. But even before this time, obelisks were prominent grave markers in Greenwood, um, and they also served as commemorative monuments. Of course, you didn't actually have to go to Egypt to see an obelisk, they were also to be found in london paris and rome but what i really want to focus on are the pyramids nestled in the hills of greenwood there are three tombs that take the form of pyramids erected to henry burke who was the founder of the american society for the prevention of cruelty to animals uh, benjamin stevens and the mausoleum i'd like to talk about today the van ness parson family's mausoleum uh, which was completed very late in 1931. this tomb is perhaps one of the most idiosyncratic and original tombs in Greenwood, if not all of New York City. It is an eclectic combination of an Egyptian pyramid with Egyptian and Christian sculpture. It's located near Greenwood's main entrance and it's a freestanding pyramid. It has a prominent entrance with a portico with a family name Van Ness Parson inscribed on the entablature and a cornice with a winged solar disk and a uraei. Uraei are snakes, Um, And the solar disk and air are a big symbol in ancient Egypt. They symbolize uh, life and longevity. There are also four marble statues that accompanied the pyramid. One of Jesus, one of Mary, and a statue of Moses as a baby, and a sphinx. Now, effectively, we have a tomb that has a pyramid, symbols of ancient Egypt, a sphinx, and Christian sculpture. This might not seem odd if not slightly contradictory. However, this combination in fact reflected the beliefs of Albert Ross Parsons, who lived from 1847 to 1933, the musician and music teacher who was buried here. He was a very talented musician, and in 1885 he became the head of the piano department at the Metropolitan Conservatory of Music, and also held important positions at numerous other churches and um, musical associations. He was also a keen amateur Egyptologist and enthusiast who wrote the sweeping treatise The New Light from the Great Pyramid, published in 1893, which combined astrology, astronomy, Christianity, history, and metaphysics all in one go. The book's first chapter discusses the Great Pyramid of Giza. Through a confused and highly inaccurate etymological discussion, that means a discussion of the origins of words, Parsons argues that the pyramid was, quote, unquote, an altar signifying death by fire, end quote, and as bearing witness to the fall of Lucifer. Now, while such claims do not withstand the scrutiny of archaeological and philological methods, Parsons' writings, like his mausoleum, reflect his deep beliefs that ancient Egypt and Christianity were connected and that ancient Egypt and other symbols like the zodiac were relevant to the United States. So, Parsons' tomb shows how there really could be a fusion of pagan and Christian ideas, and that these were not incompatible, but could be combined in unique and original ways. Pyramids never achieved the same widespread adoption as Egyptian-style tombs and obelisks did. Woodlawn and New York City's other cemeteries contain no pyramids, to my knowledge, although other cemeteries in Washington State New Orleans, for example, do. I'd like to point out at this stage that the actor Nicholas Cage has already built himself a pyramid tomb in New Orleans, uh, which if you Google, you can find on the internet. At Woodlawn, however, Egyptian architecture also does feature prominently, even if pyramids don't. And the mausoleum of Jules S. Bach is a good one to look at. It was a virtual replica of the kiosk at Philae in Upper Egypt. Bach was a leading early 20th century financier and the founder of J.S. Bach and Company. Upon his death on March 24, 1944, he was entombed in his grand mausoleum, which had been built in 1916 and modeled on the so-called kiosk of Philae. There is no publicly accessible collection of his papers that help us to understand why he picked this building, but we do know a little bit about his trips to Egypt. He visited Egypt in 1909, And may have seen the building and also we know that he collected ancient egyptian objects if we look closely at the mausoleum and compare it to the original kiosk we can start to get a sense of how similar these buildings were and for some images please take a look at the website now philae is located about eight kilometers south of aswan and housed a temple to the goddess isis who later became one of the most popular ancient goddesses and was actively worshipped until the widespread conversion of pagans to christianity kiosks are what are called bark stations. That is the processional resting location for a god's bark or boat in ancient Egypt. Basically every so often gods would have certain ceremonies and a boat would be taken out and paraded or sailed on the Nile as part of the procession for the god. In this case the kiosk was the station for Isis and the gods of Philae. The so-called kiosk of Trajan was erected during the Ptolemaic or Roman era and was decorated by Trajan. Philae was considered one of the most romantic locations in Egypt the 1892 edition of Baedeker's Egypt, the famous guidebook, recommended a day visit to Phyllis and praised the kiosk thus. The slender and graceful form that meets the eyes of the traveler as they approach the island well deserves this honor. The architect who designed it was no stranger to Greek art, and this pavilion standing among the purely Egyptian temples around it produces the effect of a line of Homer amongst the hieroglyphic inscriptions or of a naturally growing tree among artificially trimmed hedges, unquote. So the kiosk's value lies in the beauty of its island setting and the fact that it is presumed the architect was Greek or had knowledge of Greek architecture. The building is superior. It's the equivalent of a line of Homer because it is a Greek rather than Egyptian creation. At the same time, it is a culturally hybrid structure, providing inspiration for Woodlawn's tombs that were cultural fusion. Because the kiosk was a well-known building, an informed traveler would have recognized it regardless of context. Therefore, the kiosk gave anyone who reproduced it cultural cachet, identifying the individual as a well-traveled, educated sophisticated. The architecture of the Bach Mausoleum, which replicated the kiosk accurately on a reduced scale with minor adaptations, reflects the involvement of a highly informed patron. A late 19th century Bonfield's photograph of the kiosk gives us a sense of what Bach might have seen. The mausoleum, like the kiosk, the tomb's exterior was composed of 14 columns with screen walls that supported an architrave. Placed in the center of columns, where the bark would have rested, is instead the tomb. This adaptation permitted the kiosk form to be used effectively as a mausoleum. The broken lintel of the original tomb was replaced with a complete lintel and two registers. Bach was inscribed on the lower register, identifying the owner of the mausoleum. Above this in each register of the architrave were winged solar disks, again echoing this double solar disk of the original monument. Use of these Egyptian motifs also continued on the interior. Now, the architecture of the tomb was well-received at the time, and I think that's important because it demonstrates that people really liked a lot of these buildings. Writing about the tomb and its landscape for the widely circulated Park and Cemetery Landscape Gardening Journal in 1921, Ernst Stevens Leland, a prominent landscape architect, noted that as an archetype for a mausoleum, this beautiful Egyptian structure was at once picturesque, and not without appropriate significance. Now, what's also interesting is that the sophisticated reinterpretation of Egyptian architecture was also matched in the tomb's landscape architecture. Charles Welford Levitt designed the landscape. There was a garden-like setting for the tomb, which had shrubs, creepers, and trees, it would have been totally incongruous with the Egyptian architecture. And so instead, Levitt created a Neo-Egyptian landscape using only indigenous species, because the Egyptian plants would not take well the Bronx environment, but rather he used native substitutes for red soil, pampas, and cactus. Rather than using grass, which is unknown in Egypt, a coating of red shale was used that Levitt's assistants had found in Leslie Run, Pennsylvania. The original blueprints for the tomb and plot also show platforms for four sphinxes, framing the approach to the tomb, which would have evoked the sphinx-like avenues of famous Egyptian temples. No trace of these platforms or the sphinxes or even the landscape exists today. But we are able to reconstruct some of this from these early publications. So what was remarkable was, in fact, that the tomb of Jules S. Bach really managed to incorporate all of these different elements in a striking and original way. This combination of architecture and landscape meant that Bach's tomb was like a small piece of Egypt, thoughtfully and tastefully transposed to New York City. So while one still cannot obtain immortality, New Yorkers could still certainly achieve fame and notoriety through their tombs. So if you're interested to learn more about the neo-antique tombs in Woodlawn and Greenwood, I recommend that you can read Jeff Ritzman's excellent book on Greenwood Cemetery or the Sylvian Cemetery, a multi-authored volume about Woodlawn. But even better, spend a beautiful day out walking and visiting the tombs yourself. Thank you so much for joining us and have a great day. This podcast was supported by a grant from the Classical Association of the Atlantic States. If you want to learn more about that organization, please visit them at CAA. S hyphen C W dot org.